This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Live and local from the 1037 The Game Studios in Upper Lafayette, this is Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game. Streaming live at 1037thegame.com and on the free 1037 The Game mobile app. It's Saturday. Time to take a walk on the wild side. Get your Saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous CD. Do you know who I am? I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. On 103.7, the game. The boy is back in town inside the first South Farm Credit Studios. Hopefully you're having a fantastic, dare I say, wonderful Saturday afternoon. And good morning, Katie, and hopefully you have a good one. Appreciate you listening in. And, of course, as always, as I said a second ago, we're coming to you live, as always, from the first South Farm Credit Studios. Here, this, worldwide. And appreciate everybody listening in, however you're doing so, be it through that old-school FM dial. The tower of power, too sweet to be sour, I'm funky like a monkey, sky's the limit and space is the place. Oh, yeah. And also, appreciate you listening in if you're listening through the .com, the free mobile app, or if you're listening in through that Amazon smart speaker, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, just tell it to play. 103.7 The Game. Hopefully you have a good Saturday so far. It's definitely been, like, it's pretty nice outside. When I made my way into the first South Farm Credit Studios, if it was a little hot one, but absolutely a pretty darn good Saturday, the last day of July. So to get, get out there and make it a good one, even though it feels like we're maybe going back towards the masks, that's a different conversation for a different day and a whole different show. I'm not here for it. I'm just going to go ahead and just put it out on Front Street, but what I am here for is to talk about sports for the next two hours with you, and of course, if you want to call in and join in on the conversation, 337-706-0111, and I heard the professor just a little while ago talk about super conferences to start off his second hour. This is a conversation I've had many a time on the station, so I should be considered the foremost expert. And I talked about it a lot last year during the COVID times. I think I have a more firm idea of what this will look like going forward. Now, why do I say that? Because I've spent the time, I've put in the man hours, and I figured out a way to make sure it works. And more importantly, it focuses on something that the professor's theory missed out on. And that is regional. Because at the end of the day, the world of the college football realm is more built into being around super conference and being around a regionalized sport, being a lot like the old territory days. And that's kind of the crux of what's causing all this. This was planned well before the professor even got on the airwaves. So it's time to talk about super conferences, which means it's time. For the Saturday Sports Sermon. The famous CD is on his soapbox to start your Saturday. It's time for your Saturday Sports Sermon. 
And it is finally time for that discussion for Super Conferences to really ramp up and become a reality. Texas, Oklahoma are headed to the Big 12. So I think it's time to reset what I've talked about last year. they got to rerun it. And basically what I'm going to do is take what the professor said to you in hour number two. I want you to be like the professor in Dead Poet Society. When he, he talks about the book about poems and iambic pentameter and all that stuff. doesn't really matter. Tear it up and throw it away. Because it doesn't matter what in terms of what I'm going to be talking about. And we'll break it down in the perfect world. Because that's how things are going to go, first off. There was a lot of things with his theory that I don't agree with. We'll go with the conferences first. So in my mind, it's going to be the Big South, which is going to be a merger between the SEC, a good bit of it, and a little bit of the Big 12. I'll explain in a minute. You have the ACC, the Big 10, and the Pac-12. Your Power 4 is going to be the Sun Belt. I'm going to just call it the Sun Belt because I don't feel like I'm a, I, I, I could call it the Big Gold, like make it like the NWA, 10 pounds of gold. But it'd be an AAC, CUSA, Sunbelt Conference mishmash. I'll explain that a little bit later. Because, again, I want this to be very simple. Then you have the AAC, the MAC, and the Mountain West Conference. Simple as that. That's how we're going to do things. This is how we're going to do things. Now, the independents all have to play ball in this world. And, of course, in my perfect world, they all agree because there's implications that if they don't play ball in my world, if I am the czar of college sports... I think they want to be in this. And if you shut out of the college football playoff, the money will be gone for them. And there's no reason why they want to remain an independent whenever they could just kind of latch on to, hypothetically, BYU or New Mexico State, go jump over to the Pac-12. And then you have Notre Dame, in my mind, I think they joined the joined the Big Ten. I'll expl- Again, I'm going to explain all this. And we go through it region by region and conference by conference because I think this way, the, the future of college football is going to be geographic. It's a worldwide sport, but at the same time, people watch it worldwide. But the way you're going to be able to draw more attention, more interest, is by making this a geographic, making geographic sense of all this. So let's go ahead and call football a territory system, territory style. You don't have the champions floating between territory to territory, and you're all under the National Wrestling Alliance. This is going to be something at least somewhat similar, but we still find out who the one true champion is when it's all said and done. So we, we're going to pair these up, obviously, according to regions. So the Big, 12, Big South and the Sun Belt are going to be merged together. So when I pulled up the map of the United States, I decided to go Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. That feels like it's a really good lineup of teams that you can put in this new Big South world and be able to keep a lot of things going. I think that's the most important part of all this, is to be able to keep some of these relationships and some of these rivalries going. So I think you go, again, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Those are going to be your constructs of your SEC, of your new SEC or now the Big South. Now, how does everything else work out for the other conferences? 
Well, the ACC and the AAC, because the AAC is no longer going to have this like crazy mishmash of teams from Texas, teams from Ohio. No, you're going to be following the same kind of landlines and be following more along the coast. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. I'll probably, I mean, given West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all those teams. You have all those teams involved in there. Now, obviously, some might go away. I think ULM is going to be one of those in the in the Sun Belt that's going to go away. So in terms of this, I think it's all teams along the Atlantic coast. Now, the Big Ten is where things get a little fishy. I think the Big Ten is going to go Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, then you have Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. That's your entire Big Ten and Mountain West conferences combined. And I think North Dakota State also gets thrown into that mix as well. That's why I included those two states in North and South Dakota. And also Iowa. Can't forget about Iowa. So you, have, you, you get back some like really cool rivalry weeks. You can actually have literally the last week of the season – be your in-state rivalries. Be those in. Like, tell me that you wouldn't love to see a Texas Texas A&M Week Twelve of the season, and I'll get to how I want to schedule things out in a little bit. But that's your setup. Now we get into the Pac-12 and the Mountain West, and this is a again, it's a simple way of fixing it: Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Idaho. Nevada, Oregon, Washington, and California, and Hawaii. That's all the states that you're going to be using for this idea. You are going to be very regionalized. And yes, you're going to lose some games like uh, some Georgia contests. But at the end of the day, if you're in the Big South, you're gaining so much more. You're gaining Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, TCU, Texas Tech, Baylor. You're gaining a lot of talent, and this is on all levels of sport. Now, how do you keep all this in line? How do you keep all this regulated? How do you keep it all relegated and making sure it's a level playing field for all parties involved? It's simple. We follow what the people across the pond, those blokes, and what they're doing with football, and that is promotion and relegation. Because Premier League and Champions League has been like one of my favorite things in the world. We're getting close to start a soccer season, so I'm all the way here for it. And I think this will help grow the game and force teams to get better and create some new rivalries that will pop up because of promotion and relegations. Programs like the Cajuns could be moving up in the world and continue to kind of grow their brand. And that's something we hear Dr. Brian Magger talk about all the time. If you want to set yourself up, this is the opportunity to go ahead and do so. So promotion relegation, I think, is the way it's going to go. And it'll help make things better. And this is a big reason why I've paired up G4 and P4 conferences based off a of a regionalized world. Is the fact that it makes it easier for travel purposes. Because you're not going too far. Like, you see, you've seen in the past, the Cajuns go to freaking Idaho. Up in the, like... Northwest to go play a game against the Vandals, play against New Mexico State Aggies, play them over in New Mexico, play in Coastal Carolina, 
those are good games, don't get me wrong, but in terms of being able to keep it regionalized, you're, gonna, you're also going to add on teams like a Memphis, Tulsa. Like, There's some programs that you're going to be adding into this mix that are going to make this probably one of the most competitive conferences in the league. That's how I think about it. So to keep this simple, because I'm not going to include the FCS, I want to, but it's like that's a whole different mess to kind of figure out. It would be the same if I really wanted to, but I think just in terms of simplicity's sake, we're going to go ahead and have the top two G4 conferences. Whoever's the top two from each of those conferences, they move up to their respective Power 4 conference next year. While the bottom two teams from the Power 4 conferences, let's say hypothetically Tennessee and Vanderbilt or Kentucky and Louisville, let's use those two as an example. They lose, they drop down. They, they are in the bottom two. They drop down to the G4 until they can officially kind of get into a spot. Now, the question is, how do we reward these teams that get these promotions? They're going to be promoted up to the G4, to the P4 level with a spot in the college football playoff. That's the way you fix this. And we heard about the 12-team field. I'm starting to turn around on it so because it fits what I'm wanting to do. But we're gonna we're gonna modify it a little bit, and it's simple to do because it's gonna be a twelve team field. The top two power four conferences, so the top two. So let's say, like regardless of divisions, because we're still gonna have, we're still gonna have divisions. It's gonna make it simpler, but it's going to be top two regardless of divisions. So let's say Alabama and LSU are in the same division in this hypothetical world. I don't think they will be. I think they, because Alabama would be more in the East with the Mississippis, Alabamas, and Tennessees of the world. I think there's a way you can kind of regionalize it and divvy it up accordingly. But I think we see the Big South, for instance, they are going to have a situation where, hypothetically, you have Alabama and Texas. Let's just let's use those two as examples. Alabama and Texas, or Alabama and LSU, just, just work with me here. You have those two that are going to be paired up and what happens with them, they move up and get automatically a spot at the table. There's no championship Saturday in this world because of the fact that we're going to be giving the group of fours the opportunity. We're going to have we have four conferences and we have eight teams that are going to be in there. Because, again, we're going to give the two group of four teams a spot in the playoff, but they have to play in. We're going to go – I hate the playing games – that we see in the MLB, but I think it's the way of the future. If you want to keep people sports entertained, this is an opportunity to do so, and you'll have four games played because you have eight teams, and they all go at it. And it's all going to be based off of seeding, all going to be based off your ranking. So let's say the Cajuns. Let's throw. Let's just have fun with it. So it would be the Cajuns, I think Southern Miss. I'm throwing them in there just for, for fun. I think you'd also bring up maybe Cajuns, Tulane, you throw in a program like a Coastal Carolina and App State representing the American Athletic. You have the Mountain West being represented by Ohio and another team. Can't think of off the top of my head. North Dakota State. Let's go ahead and throw that hypothetical out there. Then you have the Pac-12 Mountain West. Mountain West is going to be represented by Boise State. And I think B- I, if we want to put BYU in the, Ma- the Mountain West, fine. They belong more in the Pac-12 from my POV. So let's, let's just go ahead and throw in a program like a Wyoming. Let's go ahead and put Wyoming 
and Boise State in that mix. You do that, conversation changes. And we see this thing turn around, and we see it be a lot more entertaining. And we see those two teams, and, and we do it based off of rankings. We do it off of their rankings, how they look in the top 25, where they kind of stand according to the college football playoff committee. And those teams, whoever wins, moves on and gets into the pot that is the 12-team college football playoff. Now what happens with bowl season, I think that goes away. I think that's the way it's going to go because there's so much more money in a 12-team field, especially if you have it over the course like three or four weeks, you can actually replace your bowl season with a true honest-to-God playoff on a Saturday around Christmas time. That would be absolute bleeping money. I think that's the way we're going to see things, and it presents a pretty damn level playing field in my mind. Now, when it comes to the scheduling of it, I've got an idea. So bear with me here. Because we'll have expanded conferences, I think we have two non-conference games, and those will have to be the first two games of the season. It's a 12-team schedule, just like it's always been. It's a 12-team, 12-game schedule. Your two games are going to be against group of four teams. And it'd be one from your region in terms of, so let's say LSU would have to play a team from the Sun Belt every year. It'd be, it, you know, Cajuns, be it Tulsa, whoever. You have a game that is absolutely scheduled you are going to play. And that's going to play a huge role in this. And then one game against a team from another group of four conference, but it rotates every three years. A lot like how the NFL has done it, where they have a team from the AFC South, or the, or excuse me, let's say the Saints. The Saints will play a team from the NFC East, play, it, play the entire conference of the NFC East this season. You can do something like that. And you can ha- and still have a 12 team schedule. You play two teams from your group of four level. It's not necessarily a warm up game. It's not necessarily a body bag game because these teams will be, because hypothetically, next year, let's say Vanderbilt could very well go play against insert team here and pull off an upset, and that could change their fate in terms of promotion or relegation or kind of remaining stagnant because there, there's a lot of questions surrounding it. Now, after those two games, you go straight into conference, 10-game schedule. I think that fits. I think that's absolutely going to fit the mantra of big t- of everything. You're going to have 10 games all in conference. If you have more teams, why not go for it? I think that's the perfect setup going forward, and hopefully we see that actually come to fruition. At least it's just the way I think about it. Let me know how you think. Call us up, 337-706-0111, 337-706-0111. We'll be back after this on Acadiana Sports Station, 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Numbers don't lie, because when you listen to Under the Dome with CD, your knowledge of sports increases by 141 and two-thirds percent. And they spell disaster for you as sacrifice. Now, let's get back to the genetic freak of sports talk on Acadiana's Sports Station, 1037, The Game. 
Oh, welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on 1037 The Game, 1037thegame.com. Hopefully you're having a fantastic Saturday morning. And in about, let's say, eight or nine minutes or so, we still, we got some time for your calls, 337-706-0111. If you want to react to the way I see things with amongst the Power Five and Group of Fives, we're going to have on Chris Gordy. He'll be joining us in a few. We're going to talk some Astros, but I think we're also going to be talking a lot more about the SEC, the addition of Texas, Oklahoma, what it means, the future of super conferences, because it's something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. If you haven't noticed yet, then we bring on one of my good friends, Tyler Batiste, talking some NBA hoops. He's the managing editor for The Athletic on the NBA side of things, so we're going to talk about what happened with the Pelicans, the hiring of Willie Green, and we're also going to talk about what the hell's going on with the Los Angeles Lakers? Because they're adding Russell Westbrook. How is that whole thing going to look? Because that feels like it is a absolute like behemoth brewing. And also, maybe I'll get his thoughts on how he enjoyed his first live event since the pandemic over in his current residence in Pittsburgh. We'll talk about that and so much more with him on the show today. Appreciate everybody for listening in. And I want to get into some LSU talk as well. So if you want to jump in on that, 337-706-0111. Because if we're being honest with each other, we're wondering, well, we're all talking about, obviously, what's going on with the new things with Big 12 and everything in between going on there. We're also just sitting here wondering what's happening with the state of LSU, how's everything been looking? And we hear Ed Ogeron. He's talked about this quarterback battle to no end. And he had his Rotary Club earlier this week. And this clip kind of just hits a certain way. And it's talking about the quarterback competition and saying it's going to be honest. And there's no set timeline on who wins the QB comp. Look, both those guys are going to compete. Oops, that's Sean Payton. Whoops, I apologize for that. Okay, here we go. Quarterback battle will be down to the wire. I really believe we have two championship quarterbacks, three possibly, when Garrett when Garrett gets gets a little older. Obviously, he's a mid-year. He's a freshman. It's going to take him a little while to learn the offense, as you saw in the spring game. He's a great athlete, comes from a great family, has great athletic ability. Max Johnson and Miles Brennan, it's a toss-up. It's going to go all the way down to the wire, probably one week before uh, before we play UCLA, we're going to decide who is the starting quarterback. I think there's a lot of things to take away from this. And first off, the quarterback battle going down to the wire is interesting because I think there's something to say about that actually happening. The QB battle has to be absolutely the most important storyline for LSU this season. In my mind, I think Max Johnson wins out at the end of the day. But I do agree it's going to be very close. But I think he also is kind of leaning towards maybe even finding out as soon as the Monday before. I'll throw this like log on the fire here. Don't be surprised if we see LSU's first depth chart that comes out the week before, excuse me, the Monday before, the big Saturday night contest against UCLA have an oar on it. Don't be surprised. And that speaks to 
the level of competition that this is going to have all throughout the next few weeks. Because fall camp is starting before long. You'll be hearing a lot more from it. We've got training camp right now with the Saints, and you've been hearing a lot of the New Orleans Saints clips we've had over the last few days. I think there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of questions that we're going to be having. We as a populace, we're going to be wondering what's going on with the New Orleans Saints. And I think LSU is probably the more interesting one because you have so much new with this. It's not just, oh, it's a whole different competition now. I think heading into the last season, I never thought we'd be talking about a competition in 2021 because it felt like it was preordained, if you will, that you were going to see one man have that job, and that was none other than Miles Brennan. Because Miles Brennan absolutely feels like he's the guy that's getting his just due. And we'd be seeing a guy like Max Johnson or or Garrett Nussmeyer or a Walker Howard further down the road. They'd have their time to really like develop and, and follow the same kind of model that we've seen other guys have. Seriously, go look at the trajectory of Miles Brennan. He got recruited, spent a couple of years behind the bench, on the bench, and more importantly, grew up. If you do that for a lot of these other guys, you're going to probably have a good to elite quarterback room for years to come. This isn't going to be like the DB. This isn't going to be the quarterback like death now. This is going to be the quarterback. I'm trying to think of the word now, but it's, I'm not going to say QBU because that feels like it's just so played out to just put position U on it. I know DBU is kind of LSU's signature. That's why I'm not adding to it. It's a complete farce that we continue to add on to it and it just keep saying everything's like DBU or something like that. But it's basically, you know, if you remember, if you ever listened or watched or read X-Men comic books, you know kind of what I'm talking about with Professor Xavier and his school. Like that's the school for gifted youngsters. It's Professor Ogeron's, or I think it would be Professor Pete's. It would be Jake Pete's. Professor Pete's School for Gifted QBs. That's what LSU is wanting to be. And I think in the next three to four years, we're going to start seeing that. If Arch Manning comes over, I guarantee you, that's going to be the legacy of LSU in the not-too-distant future. It's not going to be as much DBU, which, mind you, DBU does have a lot of credence to it. Tyree Matthew, Patrick Peterson, you've got so many other guys that have really made their names at LSU and have a huge legacy over there, like a Greedy Williams. Now you got Derek Stingley. So many like really talented guys have come from LSU and have been absolute legends. Now if that kind of is sustainable, I don't know. But we'll talk about that more, I think a little bit further down the road. Because I want to make sure I get into some other stuff because honestly, the Super Conference talk is really what's kind of getting the, the wheels turning. Because obviously, it's become official. Texas and Oklahoma have joined the SEC. And we got somebody, he's on the he's going to be on the hotline shortly, Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790. He was actually out at SEC Media Days, so we'll get his perspective on that and so much more. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD right here on 103.7 The Game and 1037thegame.com.
Most sports talk radio shows go up to 10 on the amp, but under the dome with CD goes one higher. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Now back to the show that brings the heat on Acadiana's Sports Station, 1037 The Game. And a very apropos song coming back here on Under the Dome, Walk Away by Five Finger Death Punch. And it feels just so apropos because that's what the Texas and Oklahomas of the world are doing, walking away from the Big 12 and joining the conference that just means more in the SEC. And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to get in some Astros talk as well because the Astros didn't do a whole heck of a lot during the trade deadline. We'll talk about that more in a little bit with our next guest. He's aboard the 103.7 Game Hotline. He is the assistant program director and also on air for Sports Talk 790 and more importantly for the sake of our conversation, host of the Locked On SEC podcast, Chris Gordy. Chris, how's it going, brother? Yo, what's going on, man? It's a busy, busy time in the sports world. That is an absolute understatement, and honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. First things first, Chris, obviously you were out at SEC Media Days last week. What was that overall vibe like come Wednesday when that news started to trickle down about Texas and Oklahoma pulling almost a Hulk Hogan jumping over from the Big 12 to the SEC? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, when when the news first came down, I think – one of the guys at the table next to me kind of like nudged me and said, hey, did you, did you see this? And as I saw it, Greg, uh, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, was literally about 10 feet in front of me. He was doing an interview with it, with another station. And, uh, you know, then I looked to my left at the escalators, and here comes all the national reporters from upstairs, Dennis Dodd, Barrett Salee, all these national guys come running down the stairs, and everybody just starts this big huddle around Greg Sankey, waiting for him to finish this interview and hopefully get a quote from him. And as Greg Sankey stood up, I think Dennis Dodd posed it as, you know, Greg, what would would the benefits to expansion be with the conference? You know, he kind of phrased it in a way where he, you know, hopefully would get an answer. And Greg kind of said, fellas, all I'm I'm focused on right now is the 2021 season. And that compared with the statements coming from Oklahoma and Texas within like the next 10 minutes in that time frame, nobody was saying no. Everybody was saying like, yeah, you know, we're not going to talk about that. But I was like, nobody's denying the report. So that right there was like, okay, this is this is happening. And sure enough, you know, within a, a week and a half, and I can't believe how quickly things move. But, yeah, here we are a week and a half later, and Texas and Oklahoma are coming to the SEC. I know everybody keeps saying 2025 because that's what they have to say legally. Yeah. But it sounds like at least the lawyers and everybody's going to get to work on this. And, everybody I keep talking to is saying 2022 is a real possibility. So this very well could be the last season that the SEC has 14 teams and the last season of Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12. And we may be talking about, you know, LSU going to Austin or Norman, Oklahoma, you know, in 2022 next year. That's crazy. Now, when it comes to that, if you see in this world that we're talking about where Texas and Oklahoma do leave the Big 12, will there be a situation where they're going to be, from what I've been able to read, they would have to fork over a ton of money to kind of let, to have this opportunity come to be, right? Yeah, it's like $70, $80 million buyout. But here, here's the problem, and this has kind of been the, the whole thing with, with, with all this news that's coming out, is we're, beh- we're behind here. Like, we're finding out information as it becomes available to us. A lot of these discussions have all been had behind closed doors. I know – 
you know, we were all like, man, is the SEC really going to vote on, you know, 14 nothing unanimously to let these two teams in? Yes, because all these discussions were already had months ago with some of these other schools. Like, hey, here's the benefits for you and all this. So I have to believe when we read, oh, my God, are they going to pay $70, $80 million to get out of their buyout with the Big 12? Yes, all that money's already been collected, and it's, you know, it's sitting somewhere in a, in a bank account ready to go. So uh, ESPN is going to try to fight it. You know, they're going to – if the Big 12 does disassemble and you know, let's say West Virginia jumps ship for the ACC and Kansas jumps ship for the Big 10, if the Big 12 falls apart, then ESPN gets out of their TV deal uh, with the Big 12 and, and they don't have to pay anything. So it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. But I have to believe all the discussions are, have already been made for all the repercussions of buyout money and all that kind of stuff. So it, this happened a few years back when, when Missouri and A&M jumped ship for the SEC. They had to pay a little bit of a buyout and of course, they had no, no problem raising that money. So it, it, it will be interesting to see how quickly this happens. No, I'm kind of the same boat talking right now with Chris Gordy Sports Talk 790 in the Locked On SEC podcast. I think this is something, this has kind of been the overarching theme, theme of this hour is the super conferences. Is this the first step towards the world of college football? Just strictly college football right now, because obviously basketball kind of lends itself to a whole different conversation. But do you see this now being that first step towards the super conferences becoming an actual thing instead of just us having it as a pipe dream in sports talk radio during the summer? It's definitely in in the discussion. I, I don't know if, you know, I know so many people have, have kind of led this to, oh, the, the eradication of the NCAA and we're just going to have these big super conferences and, you know, we'll never play the Rices or the Louisiana Monroes and those kind of schools anymore. Um, I don't know if I'll go that far yet, but yeah, this is the first step in that direction. We don't, we do know, I talked with Paul Feinbaum last week. He said, you know, he had it on good authority that they, they were other schools in the discussion that it wasn't just, uh, Texas and Oklahoma. Now, does that mean the SEC is still shopping around looking to add more teams? We'll see, but I, I like to think at least you cap it at 16 right now and, and you go from there because let's be honest. I mean, if you expand to, 18, 20 teams, you, these teams are never going to play each other. I mean, if you really want to do a true conference schedule where you play eight eight games a year and, and there's even some talk of maybe expanding to nine SEC games a year, you're still never going to play those teams. I mean, you're talking like LSU making a trip to Norman, Oklahoma would happen once every 12 years or something. So, um, yeah, I think, I think when you expand too much, you get too big and you know, again, what does the Super Conference look like? Let's say you have 20 teams here, 20 teams there, so they all just play one another. I, I don't know. It just, it all seems pretty silly. I mean, the entire thing is just absolutely just, it, it's all going to be just something we talk about for probably for the next several years because it's starting to feel like it's more and more likely it's going to happen. But looking at the Big 12, because obviously we're talking more about the SEC and all this, is this the official end of the road for the Big 12, or do they try and latch on and try to hold on for dear life and try and grab somebody, like let's say the Louisiana Raging Cajuns or a Houston or SMU, to have them in their group to be able to try and keep them at a 10-team membership? Yeah, well, I, I thought the Big 12, the biggest mistake they made when they lost A&M in Missouri was not expanding that. I mean, you, you're literally called the Big 12 and you've had 10 teams for the last close to a decade. You know, there was well, talk you know. of maybe adding a, a Houston at the time, and, you know, SMU's got a lot of big money in the Dallas area. I thought they would have made sense. You know, even even outside the box, Boise State and UCF, I know there were thoughts of, of maybe talking with them, and they never did. 
So now here you are at the Big 12. You're down to eight teams. And who do you add? Like you said, you know, Louisiana, you know, you add a Louisiana, you add a, a Houston. None of those schools replace a Texas or an Oklahoma, just the brand and the money and, and what they have. So, yeah, I, I tend to think the Big 12 is going to go the way of the dinosaur, kind of like the, you know, the Big East did years ago. But um, we'll see what happens. I, I, I know they're going to fight tooth and nail to, to try to stay alive and, and keep the Big 12 conference afloat, but I just don't see any schools out there. Anything short of maybe maybe you convince a Notre Dame to come in, I just don't know if you're going to find that big brand that's going to be able to keep the brand alive. Oh, no, it seems extremely difficult to kind of get that, to keep that brand alive in the sense that you've had it for so long. But it's just wild to think that we're going to see the Big 12 go the way of the Dodo Bird and we see things go a little bit of a different direction. Talking around with Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790 and the Locked On SEC podcast. And now it's like, I'm just thinking, like, how crazy is it going to be to have, like, Texas, Oklahoma, LSU, all in A&M. The fact we get, we, the fact we get Texas and Texas A&M facing off again, that's something that I've been waiting for for a long time. Because, again, there is no love lost between those two programs. Yeah, and, and that's what we've been we've been waiting for for years. It's amazing, you know, Oklahoma, their board of regents talking yesterday. They said, you know, we look forward to coming to the SEC. But you know what? We're going to keep our bedlam rivalry going. They said, we're, we talked with Oklahoma State. We think it's a valuable matchup. We're going to keep that. And we see across the SEC, schools have kept their rivalry games. Kentucky plays Louisville every year. Florida plays Florida State. Georgia plays Georgia Tech. They're all able to keep those permanent crossover opponents, uh, or, or rather outside of conference opponents. Um, it's so stupid that Texas and, and, and A&M, when A&M went to the SEC, that you know both schools were so hard-headed. And, and both schools were to blame. I know one will say, no, it's the other side. They were both to blame for that rivalry game going away. But, no, it's – there is nothing like that rivalry. I mean, I know we like to think the Iron Bowl, Auburn versus Alabama, is one of the best rivalries in all college football. Wait till we rehash A and M versus Texas and watch the blood and the the uh, you know the, just the pure hatred both schools have for one another. It'd be great to have that one back. Oh no, it's gonna be. I, that's the one thing I'm just I'm like, I can't wait for because again, it's that just blood hatred and you know it's we talk about the clean old fashioned hate. You brought up one of the big rivalries earlier. With Georgia, Georgia Tech, that's good. That's good, clean hate. Good, clean, old fashioned hate. This is Texas, just Texas A and M fight song. They yes. literally sing "Saw Varsity's Horns Off," which is what they refer to Texas. Like it's literally in their song. Yeah, like, it's it's never gone away. So yeah, it's it's definitely one we need to bring back. I cannot wait for that. But you know, obviously, we need to talk about the other big topic in the world of sports. That's the Houston Astros. It felt like they didn't do a whole lot. At the trade deadline, they got a, they had a decent relief pitcher, but got rid of Miles Straw. That was a real head scratcher for me, right before the deadline. Moving Miles Straw. Yeah, I love the, uh, the the two moves they made earlier in the week. They go and get Kendall Graveman, the closer from the, uh, the the Mariners, who's having a phenomenal year. Uh, they also go get uh, Garcia, the closer from the the Marlins. So I like both of those moves. But yeah, the, the head scratcher yesterday was trading away Miles Straw. And not getting really anything in, they, they get a reliever from the Indians that they really liked. And if you look at his numbers, I think his ERA is in the fours. It's nothing special. Now, the analytics guys say this guy crosses all the all the T's, dots the I's. He basically he's a ground ball pitcher, which is what the Astros love. They love guys who who pitch the contact and get those ground balls and get quick outs. So 
from that aspect, they like that guy. But, yeah, I think we were all waiting for another move. What's the next move? Um, you know, are they going to get another, another outfielder? And from people I talked to, they said, look, the, the analytics people, the people upstairs, they love Chaz McCormick. They want to give him an opportunity to, to really play a lot more. Chaz McCormick is a guy who I saw back in spring training – we were just watching him crush bomb after bomb at, at the Astros training facility in, in West Palm. And, you know, he ended up making the roster on opening day and he's played sparingly here and there, but now he's going to get a real opportunity to play full time. I know, look, Mastra did everything he could. His numbers started to come up at one point. He was playing well, but uh, this, this is an opportunity to give him a shot. And then they also brought up this kid, Jake Myers from AAA, who's going to get an opportunity to play a little bit too. And, He's been really crushing the ball pretty well in uh, for the Sugarland Skeeters. So he's going to come up, get some spot duty, and, and show what he can do. But really, this is Chaz McCormick's job to lose, and it's a bold move. I mean, it's a bold move for a team that has the best record in the American League to say we're trading our starting center fielder to roll with basically a rookie in Chaz McCormick as a starter. So we'll see if it works out. I know they're going to play Jordan Alvarez a lot more in left field. He played there last night. Obviously, they're playing in the National League ballpark this weekend, so you lose the DH. But, um, yeah, they're going to give Chaz McCormick every opportunity, and, and then we'll see what Jake Myers can do as well. But it's a bold move from a franchise that is right there with the best record in the American League. One more for you before I let you go. I need to get into the Houston Texans. What do you think this season is going to hold for them? Because, again, like we still are in like a bit of uncertainty when it comes to what Deshaun Watson's future is. I mean, we haven't heard anything about a suspension or anything as of yet, do you think anything's going to be handed down to him before we get to the preseason? Well, it's 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 an interesting spot. I mean, I, you know, Roger Goodell operates on his own timeline, and we've seen Roger Goodell hands out punishments for guys even when they're just accused of something. He, they, you know, people keep saying, "Oh, these court cases may not happen until next year." Well, none of that matters. I mean, it's. You know, he could decide today that he wants to send, you know, we're going to suspend Deshaun Watson six six games, eight games, whatever. It's just Deshaun has made it very awkward in, you know, basically not, agree, you know, telling the Texans he still wants to be traded. He still wants to go play elsewhere. And yet he shows up at practice the other day. And the Texans are like, well, we didn't really plan on you being here. And so he was running with the fours. And then they had him out on scout team playing safety. I mean, they're just kind of like looking at him like, dude, this is really awkward. Like, you don't want to be here. You have all these pending litigations. Like, what do we do? And the Texans, they kind of turned the page. They moved on with Tyrod Taylor. And yesterday, all the players at practice were saying, oh, man, we believe in Tyrod. He's a leader. You know, he's going to lead this team and all this. And it's just the awkwardness of, well, what about number four over there? It's a really, really weird situation. And I have no idea how this is going to play out. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of the weekend, man. Thanks, man. You too. All right. That was Chris Gordy. Appreciate him, as always, for joining the program. You can follow him on Twitter, at Chris Gordy. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD right here on 103.7 The Game and 1037thegame.com. we got more coming your way after this. Under the Dome with CD is a show for all the degenerates out there. You make your rules, and we will break up. Let's get back to the famous CD, yeah. who will break it all down for us. This is going to be the perfect time to kind of have a segue of all segues, because I need to talk about 
one thing involved the New Orleans Saints, and apparently Jameis Winston is getting the QB1 reps today at training camp. Day number three officially underway. I know there's a lot of fans who are out there enjoying themselves, seeing some Saints practice, going to have some observations and so much more probably to get to throughout the show. But it's a perfect time to bring this up. So a couple weeks ago, I got in a conversation and talked about the history of the Saints quarterbacks and how things aren't haven't necessarily been great when you look at the context of it, the context of history. There's been only like two or three great quarterbacks in the context of Saints history, and there have been a lot of dogs. There have been a ton of dogs, and we're going to talk about that with the Saints' definitive QB tier list. I have put it together. I've put in the man hours. I've done the research. So get ready for my definitive tier list. If you want to join another conversation in this hour, because we're going to have it at 1030, our guy, good friend, Tyler Batiste. We're going to talk about the NBA. But if you want to get on the conversation, 337-706-0111. We're going to start hour two with it next, right here on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Live and local from the 1037 The Game Studios in Upper Lafayette, this is Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game. Streaming live at 1037thegame.com and on the free 1037 The Game mobile app. It's Saturday. take a walk on the wild side get your saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous cd do you know who i am i don't know how to put this but i'm kind of a big deal on 103.7 the game and good morning everybody welcome back to under the dome with cd right here on acadiana sports station 103.7 the game and 1037thegame.com. Coming to you, uh, as always, live and in living color from the First South Farm Credit Studios. Baby, we're looking good. Woo! Well, I'm switching up on you here on a Saturday morning. Absolutely loving it. And appreciate everybody for listening. However you're doing so, be it through the free mobile app, smart speakers, the 1037thegame.com gimmick, or better yet, through that FM dial, that tower. Of power. He is the tower of power. He is too sweet to be sour. He is the rap master. There is no other. There is no equal to man. I know there are a lot of people out there right now listening to this program that are probably absolutely have seen a lot more Saints football than I could ever imagine. Because I'm only 32. Only have seen so much. But I'm sure there are some that could probably tell me more about some of the older quarterbacks. And again, I'm pulling from pro football reference for this. So we're starting off hour two with the Saints QB tier list. It's going to be controversial. It's going to be fun. And I want you to call in 337-706-0111. Give me your takes. Get your shots up. I'm going to have my opinion, and I'm going to stick with it. Because, and also, let me kind of lay down some groundwork here. So first off, in order to make this tier list, you had to have been part of this team for a while, and more importantly, 
had to have a win-loss record, according to Pro Football Reference. That's another requirement. Guys like Chase Daniel and Jameis Winston, they will be in. Because they played, because Chase Daniel was part of the team for like seven years. He played, he was, let's say this, played in 46 different games. Now mind you, how much he played is a different conversation. But the conversation's about the quarterback tier list. So three three seven seven zero six zero one one one. This is some I'm gonna I'm gonna reset it real quick. So a few weeks ago, and I talked about the New Orleans Saints and the history of quarterback. For the most part, Saints quarterbacks have not necessarily been all that great. There's Drew Brees, and then there's like everybody else. I think you could say Archie Manning's in the conversation is towards the top of the list, and this is going solely off of their time with the New Orleans Saints. So anything they did prior or since or after their stand with the Saints, that doesn't change anything in terms of the way the tier list works. We're going strictly off of things that happen on the field. Garrett Grayson, he's out of the conversation. He'd be an F tier for the record. He'd be an F tier because he got drafted in the third round in one of the worst drafts the Saints ever had. No doubt in my mind, he'd be in there. No Steve Ramsey's of the world, Kevin Ingram's of the world. Sorry, Tom Hodson, Tommy Hodson, he's not in this list. He's not in this mix. In terms of a great college quarterback, maybe we'll do an LSU quarterback tier list down the road, and that should wind up being a lot more interesting to kind of look at how things are from that perspective. But in case you don't know what a tier list is, it's something us young folks do in, in ranking things because we want to we want to have empirical evidence that everything we say is ranked. We see a lot of these tier lists on the Internet. And conveniently, there's a thing called Tier Maker. This isn't sponsored, but Tier Maker actually makes it pretty simple to create your own tier list. You put together the images, or you find somebody who's already done this. Mind you, nobody, nobody has done this. Mind you, they're not as psychotic as I am, not a sports radio like maniac. So when it comes right down to it, let's talk about the Saints quarterback tier list and this is going to be an interesting field, going from Chase Daniel all the way to Drew Brees. Chase Daniel, I mean, we got players that you haven't heard of in a while. Old school, new school, everything in between. And I'm going to give you my reasoning for each pick. So we start off with Aaron Brooks. Aaron Brooks probably got a lot of run from some people on the show a few weeks ago. And I'll say this. I am going to give him the grade of C. He's a C-tier quarterback. And it's because, and I feel like I wanted to give him B. He is such, he's so close to a B, it, it hurts me to say. Because Aaron Brooks was a quarterback that I remember watching a lot in my more formative years of watching sports in the early 2000s. That was when I really got into football. So, to say Aaron Brooks who had a really solid career as a Saints quarterback is concerned. 38-44. Got the Saints to their first ever playoff victory. Yes, you hear me right. Playoff victory. No other Saints player had been able to do that. But 38-44 and 44 overall, his touchdown-interception ratio was, was decent enough. But it's like, my God, Like the drop-off he had after that first year, 
it was 120 touchdowns to 84 interceptions, which is a really good ratio. He had tons of talent. But I think it's that win-loss record, 38-44. and 44. He had every chance to sustain what happened after that 10-6 and six season. And it got him into the playoffs where they beat the Rams. It wasn't necessarily all because of him. But at the end of the day, after that one year in 2000, the team started to dip down again. There was no sustainability. You don't. He was just a few games below 500. I think he belongs in that C tier. You can call us up right now, 337-706-0111. Because I've, again, a lot of thoughts here about this. So Aaron Brooks immediately goes into the C tier. It pains me to say that because I think he definitely belongs in the B, but the win-loss record hurts him in my mind. Now we get to Archie Manning. This is one that I think a lot of people jumped in on as well. So Archie Manning, second place in almost every single statistic in Saints history. He's an S-tier immediately. Yes, the win-loss record was absolutely abhorrent, 35-91. and But this is very early Saints era. His numbers were really good. And this is in an era of 1971-1982 where the game was still evolving. You didn't necessarily see... As much passing. I guarantee you those numbers would be damn near Drew Brees level if he was playing with the New Orleans Saints in a different era. Because you weren't seeing guys consistently throw between four and 5,000 yards a game, or season, I should say, three or 4,000, 4,000, 5,000 yards a game over the course of a season. You weren't seeing that back then. So I think Bobby Aver, I think. At a glimpse, it's probably a B or a C tier because of his win-loss record. But the numbers he put up were nothing short of impressive. 55% passing percentage. Again, considering the time he was in, I think he deserves to be in the S tier. And it's because of the fact he's also probably one of the most iconic quarterbacks for the Saints in history. So he kind of gets an S tier, and he might get a pass. I want to say Aaron Brooks could probably move up to the B tier. But it was, it was it was a very tough decision to put him in that spot. Now we get to, oh boy, this is, this is going to be fun because, again, I had the entire list pulled up last night, and then the way it works in the system that I have, I have to actually pull up. Okay, Billy Joe Hobert is the next one on this tier list. I'm going in order from what I'm seeing on my tier list. I'm also pulling up the pictures on my computer as well so I can make sure where I'm at in the list. So Billy Joe Hobart, he absolutely belongs kind of in that that D-tier range. And the Saints had an absolute infatuation with guys named Billy Joe. And we'll get to Billy Joe Tolliver in a little bit. But Billy Joe Hobart absolutely belongs in a D-tier range. He's that he's the first member of the D-tier class. Four and eight. 13 touchdowns, 14 interceptions. Pretty doggone mediocre from 97 to 99. He only played in 15 games. I can live with that. He is definitely going to be a D-tier guy. Now we get to, let's see here. We go to Billy Joe Tolliver. Speaking of Billy Joes, we go to Billy Joe Tolliver. Who boy? F-tier. Easy. Easy F-tier. Probably one of the worst quarterbacks of all time. Worst of the worst. Only played in 17 games from 98 99. He was 2 and 9 
15, inter- 15 touchdowns, 20 interceptions. That's not a great ratio. But 2-9 and nine alone puts you in the F-tier range, with all due respect to Billy Joe Tolliver. Now we get to a little more old school. Billy Kilmer, a name probably a lot of the more older people, one of the OG Saints QBs, 11-28 and 28 over his first few years with the New Orleans Saints. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably, yeah, I'm going D-tier with him. He is a D-tier quarterback. Again, numbers weren't necessarily great. And again, it's just a product of the game at the time from 1976 to 1971. Very formative years of the NFL in the current construct it's in since the merger, all that stuff. He was dealing with all that. 1967, 1973 seasons, he had a 47 touchdown, 62 interception ratio. Ooh, that's a stinker. And again, but it's also the fact it's a product of the time. 11 and 28. Those Saints were absolutely abhorrent early on. And hopefully we can kind of get over those things sooner rather than later. Now we're going to go ahead and get into Bobby Douglas. Bobby Douglas. This one, this one's interesting, I think. This one's probably one of the more interesting cases. For me, because I sat there, I was like, okay, this is, again, more of that 1970s, only played a handful of games in 15 total, three and five, had five touchdowns to 11 interceptions. He belongs in the D tier. All due respect to him. He belongs in that D tier. Now we get to Bobby Abair. I think I think he is probably that, that one outlier, one of two outliers in my grouping that I think we can say unequivocally, He's an A-tier quarterback. He's one of the few that isn't S. And here's the thing. Bobby Abier got the Saints to their first ever playoff game. That's a, that's, a check on, that's a check on his mark and his resume. And again, we're going strictly off of this, his tenure with the Saints and what it, like, comparatively speaking towards his standing amongst Saints players. Bobby Abier absolutely belongs in the A-tier. Uh, is one of, like, a couple quarterbacks in the history of the franchise that have a over 500 record. Bobby Abier had a over 500 record, 49 and 26, had 85 touchdowns, 75 interceptions over his career, 14,000 plus yards passing. I know numbers don't work well on radio, but damn it, this is absolutely. And I'm giving the case that Bobby Abier is an A tier QB for the New Orleans Saints. Now we get to Bobby Scott again. The Saints love Billy Joe's and Bobby's. And this Bobby belongs in the bottom. Big bad Bobby Scott. A who boy, a stinker if there ever was one. I'm like, yeah. Four and ten. He played in forty one games. Four and ten. And he absolutely just stunk up the joint. He had fifteen touchdowns, twenty interceptions. He belongs in the F tier. Now we're going to go ahead and move out of the B's and into the C's. Chase Daniel. And Chase Daniel never had a win-loss record. He played a lot of games, was part of the Saints for years. And I think in terms of being the back, he's probably an S-tier backup quarterback, but in terms of being a starting quarterback or a guy that gets playing time, he'd be more like Greg Gagne or Eric, I'm trying to his name right now, but it was like a, Guy who was a relief pitcher for the Dodgers was a closer. Absolutely was a model of consistency from that end. 
So for me, I think we got to go with a C tier for Chase Daniel because he was good. I just like he never had an opportunity to really show himself out that way. Now we get to Danny Werfel. And Danny Werfel's another one. I think we got to go a D tier with him. So D tier Danny Werfel. Hell of a career in college just didn't pan out at all for the New Orleans Saints. Absolutely a mess in terms of the way I was kind of thinking about things. Dave Wilson, another one that was like, okay, this is a name I didn't necessarily know a whole heck of a lot of about, but I was intrigued to see. And Dave Wilson, of course, belongs in the D tier. Because, again, the name just didn't necessarily pop out that well. Number one, number two, his numbers just were not necessarily great. 12 and 19, 36 touchdowns, 55 interceptions out of 53 games played. He belongs firmly in that pile of D tier. Drew Brees, I'm not even going to say it, but you know where he lands. He lands in the S tier amongst Saints quarterbacks. There's no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure everybody listening is nodding their head up, down right now, saying, yes, this is absolutely the way this is going to be. If you didn't put him in the S tier, you're out of your damn mind. And this list is irrelevant. Ed Hargett belongs in the F tier. I don't think he belongs, like, too high above that, with all due respect. Ed Hargett is 1-6-1 from 1969 to 1972, 11 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. I'd say he probably belongs at the bottom of the F tier. And that's saying something because there's some absolute, like, garbage in here. And I was like, what the hell when I was looking at some of these? And again, it proved a theory that I'm going to talk about at the end. Gary Quozo is a D-tier quarterback. I think he's, he's absolutely in, in the D. He's just firmly squared in there. Thir- three and seven. He only had seven touchdowns, 12 picks. Only played a few games, but still. Part of that early Saints era, I think he lands firmly in that tier list. Gary Quozo, Heath Schuler, Absolutely positively an F-tier quarterback. Probably one of the worst records. That's saying something, a one and six guy. Billy Joe Tolliver was two and nine, but Heath Schuler was a guy that just I feel like four and five amongst Saints score in his record in ten games. Four and five, two touchdowns, fourteen interceptions. He may be the bottom of the barrel of the F tier of the worst quarterbacks in Saints history. And I think everybody can agree with me with that. Heath Schuler, without a doubt, probably the worst quarterback the Saints have ever had. Bar freaking none. Now we get to Jake DeLome, and this is the curious case here. Because Jake DeLome had a much better career outside of New Orleans with the Carolina Panthers. But he still had like a decent decent career with the Crescent City. He only played a couple games. He was 1-1 one one over his career. Three touchdowns, five interceptions. But I think it was still, you know, it's that incredibly mediocre tier. And C is always going to be your average. Average quarterback. What we saw with Jake Dolom in the, in the six games he played, he was average. And that's kind of where he's at. He's perfectly fine in that C tier. If we're talking Carolina Panthers, he's probably, I'd say, A or B tier, depending on your perspective. Because, of course, he got him to a Super Bowl in his first year, but then after that, not necessarily much was going on. And another curious case, 
I'm going to put him in the C tier for now, and that's Jameis Winston. I might run this back next year, and we move him up. Or at the end of the season, I might move him up. He's an incomplete great. I want to add an incomplete, but I said, no, I'm not going to do that to him or Taysom Hill. So Jameis Winston belongs in the C tier. we got a few more left, and we're going to take care of that when we take a quick timeout. If you have any reactions to it, call me at 337-706-0111. You listen to Under the Dome with CD on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Under the Dome with CD is far from your ordinary sports talk show. I am the voice of the voiceless. What other show has more pop culture references than an episode of Family Guy? I just don't want to be involved in any of that mess. Now, back to the famous CD on 1037 The Game, Acadiana's sports station. All right, welcome back to Under the Dome with CD. We got um, our guy, Tyler Batiste, joining us in a few moments. But we're going to go through this rapid fire because we've got a handful of quarterbacks left. We already know who's filling out our S tier, but let's see who else is going to be entering the fray. Jeff Blake is a B tier. I'm going to go ahead and kind of go rapid fire here. Jeff Blake's a B tier quarterback. He only played you know, really only sparingly 12 games of his career with the Saints. 7-4 and four record. That alone has me convinced he's probably one of the best quarterbacks and he deserves to be in that B tier. Could add more time, the conversation changes. But I think, obviously, he is going to be a B-tier. Next up, we've got Jim Everett on the tier list. Check that. Chris Everett. Yes, of course. We're talking about Jim. Don't call me Chris Everett. And I'll say this. I give an L. In fact, he's one of the few Saints players in history to block me on Twitter. Some because of that. But he gets a B-tier. He gets a B-tier because his numbers are were actually like pretty doggone decent. Yes, he's not exactly like well loved, has a sub five hundred record, but his numbers are impressive. Sixty touchdowns to forty eight interceptions, over ten thousand yards passing, one of five in the history of the franchise to hit that mark. I gotta give him the B tier, even though he has a really crappy record. Good stuff, even with the nineties team that was kind of like dog you know what. Larry Sifa. Oh, boy. This one, this one was, like again, looking back at these numbers, looking back at these teams, looking back at these tiers, he's a D tier, and it was just wild to think about that name. I was like, okay, wait. Oh, I don't, I didn't put him there. Let me go ahead and go back. That was, yeah, Larry C. I almost grabbed the wrong one. He's in D tier. Now let's go back into order. John Forcade. John Forcade, in my mind, I was like, okay, this was a little bit of an interesting one, too, an interesting case. He's a B tier in the sense of the history and what he did. Seven and four record, a lot like Jeff Blake. I gotta give him credit. He is a B tier quarterback. Again, a lot of we're getting a gauntlet of B's. This is something I didn't expect when I started this experiment, when I started doing the research and putting in the man hours to get this done. And then we go Carl Sweetan, he's an F tier quarterback. Why? He's yet never won a game. He was 0-2-1. Carl Sweetan, in 1968, played five games, 0-2-1. That's not great. Now we get to Ken the Snake Stabler, a lot more known for his career with the Oakland Raiders. 
no doubt in my mind, one of the, the phenomenal player played at Alabama, but was part of the Saints in the mid eighties, eleven and eleven. And it makes you think it's like based off of what I've done with all this, you'd probably put him kinda high. You'd put him in a decent spot in the tier list. I got him as a D tier because I think Ken Stabler, it was a tail end of his career. Only really played a couple seasons with the Saints and was really kind of like, he was falling off a little bit. Maybe the man rest in peace, but 11 and 11, he was, he had 17 touchdowns, 33 interceptions. That's why he lands in the D tier. Now we're going to keep it going here and go to Luke McCown. He only played a couple games in his career. He was, I believe, one and one over his career with the New Orleans Saints. He didn't do a whole lot. But the games that the game he did play in against the Carolina Panthers in 2015, that was actually pretty good. And considering the fact that he is 0 and 1, but he was able to have a really good performance in lieu of Drew Brees being injured. I think I'm going to give him a little BOTD and have him be in the C tier. Mark Brunel. He belongs absolutely, like, firmly in the D-tier list. Kerry Collins, forgot about him. He's in the D-tier as well. A lot of Ds and Fs here in this tier list. That's not counting guys that didn't do much in the with this team, like, much of it at all. So we're going to go with, next one is going to be Mike Buck. Mike Buck was a name. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. 0-1. Four touchdowns, four interceptions. He is firmly in the D tier, very much close to an F tier quarterback. And this, again, it kind of proves my point, but it's mind-blowing to see how mediocre quarterback play has been in the league for the New Orleans Saints in their history. Now we get to uh, Richard Todd. That was like a name I hadn't heard. I was like, okay, that's... Interesting, I'll go ahead and throw that log into the fire here. Richard Todd, he's a C-tier quarterback. Numbers were necessarily like phenomenal, but he got some wins. He got some stuff done. And that alone, I think, is good enough. Six and eight in the mid-80s. He only played 17 games from 1984 to 1985. And 14 touchdowns, 23 interceptions. I think he lands kind of firmly in that meh tier because getting not a whole lot to go off of steve walsh on the other hand he is going to be one of our next guys if i'm not mistaken steve walsh where are you i had you written down in my list steve walsh is actually a b tier i was i'm kind of surprised i thought he might have been towards the bottom i had him written down before the show but steve walsh actually had a 10 and 9 record 25 touchdowns 22 interceptions i think he definitely belongs like Firmly in that B tier range, in my mind, it's something you don't necessarily think about a whole hell of a lot when we're talking about Saints history. Not necessarily like amazing, but not bad either. So we, we're done with Steve Walsh. Taysom Hill is another one I want to put as an incomplete, but I'm not going to because he absolutely has play. He, he's got a winning record for the, like right now. The jury's still out. But I think he's a B tier. He could very well drop down, but he works better. You know what? Screw it. He's a C tier. We're going to put him in C because I think he fits more in other roles versus being a true quarterback day in, day out. 
Teddy Two Gloves is an A tier. No doubt in my mind. He has an undefeated record as a New Orleans Saints quarterback. Actually, no, he has one loss. Five and one as a Saints quarterback. That's saying something. And I think he has a hell of a talent. And I wish he would have gotten more of a run at other places. Now, these last two are interesting. Because I got a response on Twitter last night when I mentioned I was doing a tier list. Give me your worst quarterback in Saints history. And I sat there. I was like, okay, I know who I have in mind, but throw me yours. And somebody brought up during that conversation, Wade Wilson, not Deadpool. He actually belongs in my C tier. He's like a middle-of-the-road quarterback in Saints history. Literally, like 7-7, 12 touchdowns, 15 interceptions in two seasons, played in 18 games. A little less than two, that almost like a little more than twenty six hundred yards. He is literally like the definition of a C tier quarterback. Now we get to the last one. That's Todd Bowman. He is alongside, I think, Carl Sweetan, the worst of the worst quarterbacks in Saints history. So that's my list, and I'll put up on Twitter a little bit later on on the program. Because that's kind of how I want to do things. We're going to put this together. We're going to put this up on the Twitter machine. Let's put it up live. So we'll put it up on Twitter along with the segment on demand right now and also on 1037thegame.com because why the heck not. But make sure you check that out. Give us a follow. Give us a like as well. And the tier list is going to be up shortly. And hopefully you love it. And if you hate it, it is what it is. We got more coming your way. We're going to talk some NBA with our guy Tyler Batiste of The Athletic. We'll be back after this right here on 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. From the octagon to the 20 by 20 squared circle and everywhere in between. The world famous CD isn't afraid of tackling any topic. Just don't expect him to get into the ring with anyone he offends. Finish him. Just bring it. Let's get back to Under the Dome. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on 1037 The Game, 1037thegame.com. And of course, we got to bring in our tag team partner, talk about all things NBA with Tyler Batiste. How you doing, my brother? I'm good, man. It's a, it's a beautiful day uh, up here where I am. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Obviously, we'll get to some of the stuff about the NBA in a moment, but I know you you were out there at um, uh, the Pittsburgh WWE Live event, right, the other night? Yeah, yeah, last Saturday. I think it was the first uh, non-televised yeah. live event event on the road that they've done since uh, since this whole pandemic thing started, yeah. But how cool was that to see that event? And the fact you had the, the man himself was actually back inside in an arena in John Cena. Yeah, man, it was exciting. People were, uh, you know, I, I admit there were a lot more people than I anticipated uh, being there in a good way. You know, sometimes you go to some yep. of these WWE events and they tarp off a, a lot of the camera side and, and, and make it look great on TV. But the entire floor and lower bowl was, was packed and we saw some uh, pretty good matches. Riddle and AJ Styles was, was a good match and uh, saw some Drew McIntyre, Sheamus, which I'm always a fan of, those, those two big, big guys uh, doing battle. And 
uh, yeah, Cena was there, and, and the kids were excited. The adults were excited. It was it was a fun Saturday night up here in uh, in Pittsburgh. And it's just been a fun like last like forty eight hours, I think, for fans of the NBA. I know obviously the U.S. men's basketball team. I didn't. I I was watching part of it before I came into the studio. What was the end result for that? Because I've been kind of like in the dark lately. Like, what was the final for that game? Well, I should know it off the top of my head. I don't. I know the U.S. Uh, ended up winning by 20-something points. Okay, good. After, That's all that matters. Uh, after, yeah, after kind of a slow first half, and Kevin Durant kind of turned it on uh, over uh, in the third and actually passed Carmelo Anthony for the uh, most points for uh, an Olympic men's basketball player. Uh, in the history of the Americans at the Olympics, Carmelo was number one. Now that, that title belongs to Durant. So um, he just kind of proved that when he's on, there's no one in the world that can stop him. And that was a, this morning was a pretty good case of that. But yeah, they're on to the, uh, knockout stage. I believe they played Tuesday in the quarterfinals with a, an opponent, uh, to be determined. It's going to be a lot of fun to see how Team USA does turn it around. I mean, after that, like, absolute, you know, moment where it just felt like they just weren't there in that first game in pool play, lost for the first time since that 2004 season. Everybody started saying, oh, woe was me. We're starting to get into the conversation about maybe, just maybe, this team is more along the lines of the 2004 team that wound up getting the bronze. That could still happen, but it just feels like maybe those conversations started to go away after what we saw like in the last couple games. Yeah, it certainly seems like they're uh, they're kind of gelling and meshing together and learning different uh, tendencies of the of the people on the team and then the coaching staff as well. Um, I think there's a lot to be said. You know, I I, I think a lot of people kind of have a certain arrogance about how the Americans should always win gold, and I think that is still the case. But there's some stuff to be said for uh, you know these teams like Australia and France who you know, have a handful of NBA players, but also they have eight or nine guys who have been playing together for, uh, you know, months, sometimes even years on, you know, FIBA tournaments and just practicing and, and playing in the same league and getting to know each other. So it's really tough to just, you know, get 12 of the best players in the in the country and put them together for practice for two weeks and just expect them to to, to tear through everybody. The, the level of competition elsewhere in the world is still pretty high and has gotten higher over the past few years. But all that being said, you know, I, I think I still take the Americans over over everyone else, but it does take some time to get together and get to know each other, and sometimes that time comes through games that actually matter in the group stage. Would you agree with this theory? Because I saw this pop up a lot on Twitter over the last few days. Would you agree that maybe the NBA needs to change their rules a little bit to be more along the lines of FIBA? Because it feels like the FIBA rules are used a lot more in Olympic international play, whereas the NBA is just a whole different world in comparison to where like you're gonna you're seeing maybe. It's almost like a language barrier to a certain extent for some of these guys, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, if you're going to change the, the, the NBA has been, you know, they they've made new superstars recently. They're they they they've survived, you know, everything that's going on with COVID and and have have uh, have thrived in a sense. I don't know why you want to change your rules to kind of accommodate, you know, a, 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 honestly, a competition that people only really care about every four years. I mean, for 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 us, you know, the the Olympics. Is, come around once every four years or in this case five years but you know i don't know a lot of my friends who are like watching fiba basketball tournaments you know in, in the off years and just you know going you know uh, full throttle and, and rooting for the americans in, in, in those situations of course you want them to win but i don't know if you would change your entire rule set and the strategy just to kind of accommodate you know something that comes around once every four years i think the nba is doing fine um you know i i kind of don't agree with that theory but that's just me. <laughs> That's my opinion, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Talking right now with Tyler Batiste, managing editor for the NBA side of the Athletic. 
and obviously the NBA trade, the NBA draft just kind of came to an end the other day. But I think the bigger headline was the fact that the Los Angeles Lakers just simply went ahead and entered reload mode and are going to presumably bring in Russell Westbrook. How massive is that? And is this kind of that that final piece they need to really reestablish the dynasty that is the Los Angeles Lakers after getting eliminated early on in this offseason? I mean, anytime you bring in a, a future Hall of Famer like Russell Westbrook, it's gonna it's gonna make some headlines and it's gonna cost some waves. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily love this fit with him, um, with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I think what they really need. Um, is shooting. You know, one of the things that they struggled with last year, they didn't have a ton of outside shooting, um, you know, on their wings. You know, Contavious Caldwell Pope is a great player. He's not necessarily somebody who you know is going to be nearly automatic from three. I-, I think a better fit for them probably would have been someone like Buddy Heald, who they were connected to um, at times this week, a shooter who, you know, you can't really play off of uh, LeBron James and-, and Anthony Davis when Heald's on the court. You know, if somebody's guarding Russell Westbrook and they see LeBron James drive to the hoop, I think they're probably going to go after LeBron James and, and say, okay, if Russell Westbrook is going to beat us from 25 feet out, then we'll take our chances with that. But on the flip side, you know, having another playmaker, somebody who can put the ball in their hands besides LeBron James and make plays for others at times, take some of the pressure off of him, which I think is going to be really helpful in the regular season, keeping LeBron James fresh for the postseason. But it's going to be interesting to see how it works out um, uh, you know, once the playoffs start. I, so I see some positives, but I think the negatives might outweigh the positives. But I don't think this move move happens unless LeBron and AD were on board with it. So they're the stars. you got to keep them happy, and, and we'll see how it goes. It just feels like, to me, you look at Russell Westbrook and you have AD, you have LeBron, it feels like you're not going to have enough really – it's going to be too many mouths to feed to a certain right. extent when you think about it. Like, there's too much like, – we all know Russell Westbrook loves to be the triple-double machine, but with guys like AD and LeBron, I feel like that's going to be a lot tougher road to hoe. So it's like the chemistry, I think, is the biggest thing that I'm worried about. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see because, you know, Russell Westbrook is, like you said, a triple-double machine, but a lot of those situations recently in Washington, in Houston, even toward the latter stages of Oklahoma City, you know, it's kind of a situation where, like, okay, what else is he supposed to do? He's the he's the best player on the team or at worst, the second best player on the team. Right. So you, you kind of need him. If you're going to be competitive, you need him grabbing rebounds. You need him dishing out assists. You need him trying to score 30 points a game. I think Westbrook is a, is a smart enough player to realize that on this team, he doesn't have to do all that. And it's going to take some time as we were talking about with the U S team to kind of figure things out and, and him have that realization that, okay, this is going to be more akin to how it was when I was playing with Kevin Durant and James Harden, you know, a decade ago and not necessarily where I need to be doing everything. So that might take some time, you know, work through some things in the preseason and early on. Uh, and, and those are three really smart basketball players. So it, it could all come together really easily if they're, if they're uh, you know, committed to it. But on paper, his lack of shooting, which has never been great, and it's been even worse the past couple seasons, I, I just think that's something that they, they need to figure out in free agency, hopefully get some guys who are – willing to come in and play for Chief and, and can knock down some threes and play some defense. Looking over at just the NBA as a whole, one of the big things that popped up was the NBA calendar for the 2021-22 season. It looks like we are getting back to some form of normalcy with the schedule where free agency is going to begin in a couple days on Monday at 5 o'clock, and the regular season is going to begin on October 19th. Do you think that was the right idea to kind of go back to a 
somewhat normal schedule, or would you have preferred it to be like it was this year, where it starts in like December, and then we can see the season go into like late June, early July? I, I kind of like the idea of, of, of kind of having this this uh, truncated off season one more time, um, where things are kind of uh, out of whack, and then trying to get back to some level of normalcy um, next off season. That way, players can uh, you know have have as much of an offseason as possible. This offseason was already kind of weird, even if it was quote-unquote normal because of the Olympics. So you might as well just stack those two things up together and, and say, hey, guys, you know, we were going to have one more short offseason and we're going to try to get back to normal as much as we can. I think the players would probably um, agree with that. You know, the, the season starting earlier next year hopefully allows for a few more days off um, than they had this season, which, you know, maybe it's anecdotal, but you saw a lot of injuries in the playoffs. Uh, you know, Danny Green, Giannis, who – you know, was hurt, but it didn't really matter. Trey Young, LeBron James, Anthony Davis. Was that a, a product of not having much practice time in a lot of games, uh, more games than normal in a, in a shortened amount of time? Maybe. But, um, yeah, I kind of like what they're doing with the schedule and, and just saying, hey, we're going to try to get back to normal next June, next July. What do you think about the Pelicans hiring Willie Green? I think it's a good hire. I think it's a really good hire. I mean, he's he's a – He's a, a guy that's well respected in the league, and and um, you know, with a young team like that, I know Pelicans fans have been disappointed with how the past couple seasons might have gone. But if you look at their two cornerstone players, they're still really young. Um, I think it's a good idea to kind of bring in a coach who is also young, who can um, not necessarily uh, probably number one. The, big, the biggest thing is to kind of get them to play defense, right? Which is something that they didn't <laughs> they didn't do too well last year. But um, you know, he's well respected. He's coming from that kind of Monty Williams. Uh, coaching tree who, you know, Monty Williams, by all accounts, is one of the best coaches in the league. I think it's a it's a good fit. And the biggest thing, the most important thing is is that, you know, Zion approves. And, and I don't think that move happens without, you know, the sign off from your star player. So we'll see how it goes. But on paper, I think it's I think it's a good move. And I, I'm excited to see what they do. Tyler, appreciate you coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, man. Okay, you too, man. All right, that was Tyler Batiste of The Athletic. We're going to take a quick timeout, wrap up the show, nice little bow. Got one final take for you as we head into the weekend. Back after this on 103.7 The Game. Just before we close up shop here on 103.7 The Game, the famous CD is looking to fire off one more take before dropping the mic. Is it going to be a hot one? Or is it going to be one he'd like to take back six months down the road? Let's listen in and find out. Welcome back. One final take here to end the show. And I think we got to kind of bring it back to what we talked about to start the hour. And that's Saints quarterbacks. And more importantly, I think the quarterback battle. I think this one's a lot more honest. I think it's the fact that you've got a timetable where you could very well be finding out Week, heading into week one, who that starting quarterback is going to be. But I think we need to trust that process because Sean Payton is actually living up to his word in this sense because it's not just been Taysom Hill receiving the QB1 snaps. Now you're seeing him in that spot. You're seeing him get an opportunity to be that QB1 in this practice, it's going to be a rotation. You'll see two guys. You'll see two days of Taysom, two days of Jameis, and the fact you have Jameis out there the first time, fans are going to be out there live in living color. That kind of maybe tips my hand to seeing maybe Sean Payton actually willing to give 
more credence and more opportunity to the man from Florida State that honestly I've derided a lot in his career. But honestly, I am going to kind of redeem myself by saying I think he absolutely deserves every opportunity to succeed. And I really hope he does before long. But that's about all we got for this week's Under the Dome with CD. Appreciate everybody for listening in. Appreciate once again the good folks Chris Gordy and Tyler Batiste joining the program talking SEC football, Astros, NBA, and a little bit of pro graphs as well because why the heck not? And, again, as always, appreciate you for listening. And we'll be back next week, presumably. Same bat time, same bat channel. We'll find out more, and we'll make sure to keep you posted about what time this show airs. Because sometimes we need to know what time we're going to be on the air. I guess I was hearing the professor say 8 to 10. His show was going to be started. I was like, mm, maybe, maybe. Like, we're going we're gonna to finalize some things, make sure this show gets back to you next week. Maybe not same bat time, same bat channel, but I'd say pretty doggone close. We'll get to that more down the road. But until next time, I'm the famous CD. You've been listening to Under the Dome with CD. If you missed anything, you can check it out on demand. We're going to have it up in a little bit. Just search Under the Dome with CD on your favorite podcast gimmick. And also check out the Cajun Strong Style podcast. We'll be taping that one on Monday. I have a lot to say in this week's pod as well. You can check that out right now on 1037thegame.com. We're back next week. So until then, see you later. Hey, Clavis, wake up. It's your Oh, yeah, kick it.